This time we'll release those that are serving in the nursery, as well as kids three and under, uh, kids that can crawl through age three. Just down the steps there in the back of the room and down the second set of steps to your right, you'll find the nursery uh, right down there. And that is not a sneaky way for us to try to boot your kids out of here. We love your kids and we love you. Uh, We are not trying to rid ourselves of them. We love them. That's there to serve you. And so if you'd like to take advantage of that, uh, that is there for you. If not, we've got a room just right there with a window. You can still see my shining face. If your kids uh, get a little restless and you need to give them a little break from this room. Uh, One more quick announcement. If you are interested in becoming a member of this church, um, get with me right after the service. I'd like to meet with with that group for about 35 seconds right after the service. Um, Just talk about um, some dates for our membership class. We have a membership class that's a part of becoming a member here. We do it on a Friday evening and a Saturday morning. And I'm looking to get that on the calendar probably within the next couple of weeks, early in February. And so if that's something you're interested in, becoming a member here, or you just want to know more about um, what we believe, where we stand doctrinally on things, um, you, you are welcome to sign up for that class. We'll have sign-ups by next week. But I just want to meet with those who would be interested and, and see if there's a date that works better for you. That's, that's the whole goal of that meeting, so it'll be pretty quick. But if, if you would, just at the end of the service, meet me right up here. Um, I'll hang up here, and um, I'd like to talk to you. Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 15 as we continue on in this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us. Romans chapter 15, and we really will be moving, moving through the rest of this book pretty quickly in the weeks to come. Let's stand up together, though, in honor of the word of the Lord as we now hear from God his word to us this morning from Romans chapter 15, and we are picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will many Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, as you have given to us this pure and perfect gift, we pray by that same spirit who inspired this text that you would open our ears to hear. Open our hearts to receive your word this morning. We pray that you would accomplish that which only you can do, causing dead hearts to live and blind eyes to see awakening understanding in the hearts of your people. 
Pray, God, for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you can be seated. We have been going through a long section here these last number of weeks on preferential matters, what are called matters of indifference, those things that are not explicitly commanded of Christians, those things that are not explicitly forbidden for Christians. And what we see in, in the pages of the New Testament epistles as we read these letters, they're, they're often a reflection of conflict. They're often a reflection of disagreements and controversies and disputes within the early church. They're, they're what is known as occasional letters. There was, there was some occasion that prompted the writing of these letters. Something is going on that has led the apostle to write a letter to a particular group of Christians in a particular place going through a particular situation. And one of the major problems we see in some of these letters is ethnic strife. It's, it's cultural conflict between Jew and Gentile. There's this massive divide between Jew and Gentile in this first century world. There is racism going in both directions. There are cultural differences that are stark. There are centuries of hostilities behind them as they come to this time. The, the Jews, for instance, as, as Paul is writing this letter to this group of Roman Christians... They despise the fact that Gentiles have power over them in the Roman Empire. There, there are all these things swirling around these circumstances, and this is fertile ground then for misunderstanding. It's fertile ground for bitterness and for judgmentalism as the Jews and Gentiles are brought together from these entirely separate groups to become one new man in the body of Christ, in the local assembly. It is a breeding ground for conflict. And so we've been looking for, for some 30 verses now at the divisions that came over matters of personal conscience, over matters of liberty, between what Paul calls the strong and the weak. Those who felt confidence before the Lord to, to engage in certain practices or those who did not feel confidence before the Lord to engage in certain practices. And, and it's quite likely that that these differences that Paul has been working through in all of Romans 14 and now as we've been in, in Romans 15 so far, fell largely along ethnic divides, fell largely a, along cultural divisions, Jew and Gentile. And so as we come to this passage today, Paul is wrapping up his teaching on our need for unity. He's really wrapping up the, the substantive teaching of this entire book with this passage that we look at this morning. And he wraps it up with a command for us, with an explanation, and with a prayer. First, see the command here in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And we know when we see that word, therefore, we're always going to remind ourselves that it's pointing backwards. It's pointing at what has just been said. And Paul is really giving us here a summary that wraps up everything he's been saying from Romans chapter 14, verse 1, down to this point. And he sums it up like this. Therefore, welcome one another. That's the command. Welcome one another. And he, he spells out the motivation for us. Welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed you. So here's the command, welcome one another. Why? What is motivating us to obey that command? First of all, because Christ has welcomed you, because Christ has accepted you, you too must welcome one another. But we could come at that statement from another angle. Just like Christ welcomed you, you ought to welcome one another. So we welcome one another because Christ welcomed us and we welcome others in the way that Christ welcomed us. That's the command that Paul gives to us. And this command assumes that we must have some massive differences with one another or else we wouldn't need this command. We wouldn't need to be told, welcome one another. We wouldn't need this last chapter and a half if we were all clones. If we all saw the world exactly the same way and valued the same things and had the same convictions and preferences. No, it's because we're different. It's because we have different backgrounds and different experiences and different progress in life and different progress in doctrine and different convictions that we've formed over time because of things that have happened to us or conclusions we've come to in our understanding of Scripture. We are different, and so we need this instruction. We need it so bad that God has seen fit to give us a lengthy section in the book of Romans at the conclusion of all this glorious doctrine in the book of Romans, at the conclusion of this section of how then we apply that to our lives and live as Christians, God has seen fit to conclude with a lengthy section on our need to walk in unity with one another. And notice what God says to us. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That word you is a plural word. I suppose if he was from the American South, he would say, as God has welcomed y'all. Christian, God has welcomed you. God has accepted you. Think about that for a moment. What did it mean for Christ to accept you? For, For the Holy One who knew no sin. For the one who was sinlessly perfect for the second person of the triune Godhead who is holy, holy, holy. What did it mean for that one to accept you in your sin when you were hostile, when you were thankless, when you were thoughtless of him? And maybe you're thinking, I wasn't hostile. I was just indifferent before my salvation. I was, I was neutral. While Paul has shown us in Romans, there is no such thing as neutral. Before he saved you, you were in open rebellion against him. That is what Paul has shown us. In the early chapters of Romans, Paul showed us beyond any shadow of a doubt, you were at war with him and he was at war with you. What would it mean for Christ to accept you? It's, it's a staggering thought. It's one we dare not take lightly. It's one we dare not take for granted. When we understand, and Paul goes to great lengths in the early chapters of this letter to open our eyes as if he takes us to the to the edge of that pit of filth and decay and condemnation and tells us, look inside. He has gone to great lengths to show us God's true and right assessment of our condition. Not just our own condition, the condition of all of humanity. 
When we take that into account, we ought to be astounded. We ought to be surprised that God would set his affections on anyone. And all the more on us. You know you. You know what you're like. Christian, God has welcomed you. God has accepted you. What a glorious thing that is. Think about what it meant for Christ to have accepted a Jew in the first century that Paul is writing to here. The the Jews who had such privilege. The Jews who had been entrusted with the very words of God. Who had had been given the promises to the patriarchs. who, Who had access to the temple and the sacrifices. The Jews who were witnesses of glory and power and rescue and provision. And yet, as a group... They turned their backs on God. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They were like Judas as a group. Betraying Him. Crying out, crucify Him. Let His blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. What would it mean for Christ to accept someone like that? What would it mean for Christ to accept one like Paul? A blasphemer. A violent persecutor of the church. Well, the only hope for the Jew, the only hope for someone like Paul was grace. Infinitely costly grace. In spite of what was deserved, no Jew was going to be saved merely by heredity, by family lineage. No one got in on the coattails of Abraham or Moses. It was all of grace. And what would it mean for a Gentile to be accepted by Christ? Paul told us in the early chapters of Romans, the state of the Gentiles. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul goes on from there to describe in shocking detail the the desperately lost and hopeless condition of the Gentile world. They knew God existed, but they suppressed the truth. They suppressed the truth they saw with their eyes in creation. They suppressed the truth that they knew inwardly to be true from the testimony of God in the human heart. And in unrighteousness, they pursued evil instead of God. So Paul says, God gave them over to their depravity. And they went from bad to worse. And so God gave them over to it and over and he gave them over and he gave them over and on and on from bad to worse in this downward spiral of rebellion and wickedness and hatefulness and judgment and condemnation. What would it mean for these enemies of God, these worshipers of false God, these slaves of sin to be accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ? What was their only hope? was grace. Only mercy. Only infinitely costly grace in spite of what was deserved. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul led us in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Describing the hopelessly lost 
state of the Gentiles, showing us the worthlessness of the Jewish system to justify a person, showing us all of humanity cemented in in our father Adam into wickedness and corruption, bound up in sin under just and righteous and good condemnation and wrath from a holy God. And Paul brings us from that state to God's glorious salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That the only reason anyone is accepted by God is because of the justifying blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was offered as a propitiation through faith in his life and death in our place. The propitiation, the one who, who steps in and takes, diverts the wrath of God that is, is so deserved by us and takes it all himself. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy so that no man may boast, so that every mouth will give praise to God alone. Every Jew that thought they were in because of their ancestry, but had really been cut off from the one olive tree of salvation and just didn't know it in their blindness and in their sin. Every Gentile who was outside the old covenant, totally without hope, all of these Jews and Gentiles alike have now been grafted into the one tree of salvation. And all who have been grafted in must say, it is only by the grace of God that I'm grafted in. It's true of the Jew. It's true of the Gentile. Believers, that's the only thing that separates us from the rest of the world. We look at the world descending into madness and chaos and just utter moral depravity and insanity that 20 years ago none of us could have imagined we'd be in this place. The only thing that separates us from the rest of the world is mercy. It's undeserved favor and kindness and grace from God. That is it. There's nothing that we have done. It's no, no smarts on our part or inherent goodness on our part. It is all of grace. And this is a humbling motivation because it brings us to the end of ourselves. We get no glory from this. Christ has accepted you so... Christians accept one another. That's how Paul frames this command to us. Every blood-bought believer should, in fact, must accept one another. Does that mean we're all going to be best friends? No. Even in a church this size, we're not going to know everyone else as well as we know some people. It's just the reality of life. We have a limited amount of, of mental, emotional capital. We have a limited amount of time. That's true. But you can't hold something over another believer in the church thinking, I'm better than you are. I'm more deserving of you are. Grace rips that away from us. I'm more loved by God than you are. My preferences matter more than yours do. No, the cross of Christ stands in clear opposition to such arrogance. We've all been accepted contrary to what is deserved. And so we must accept one another. 
And the last part of verse 7 through verse 9 tells us the why and the how. Why did Christ accept us? For the glory of God. How could Christ accept us? By becoming a servant. Look at how he explains this in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Notice the end there of verse 7. Why did Jesus take on human flesh? For God's glory. Why did he empty himself? For God's glory. Why did he become a servant? For God's glory. Why did he allow himself to be mocked and scorned and beaten and crucified? For God's glory. Why did he accept the Jews and the Gentiles? For God's glory. He did it, verse 8 says, to show God's truthfulness. It was to vindicate God's name. It was to show that God's promises were true. Jesus Christ became a servant to the Jews, Paul says, for the glory of God. In order to be the very manifestation of his truth. And then notice verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So God's merciful to the Gentiles as well so that they will glorify him. That's the purpose, friends, of our being saved. To glorify God. To bring glory to God. That is why he has saved us. Romans 11 verse 36. Paul told us this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's truth is to be honored. God's name is to be exalted. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to one another ultimately for God's glory, for his honor, for his fame, for his renown, so that he will be worshipped. That's the why of our acceptance with Christ. Why have we been accepted by Christ? For the glory of God, the eternal glory of God. Now, how does God do that? How are we accepted? How, how does God take rebels? How does God take a, a treasonous, rebellious people who have earned condemnation and wrath and nothing else with our lives? How does he, he take those people and accept them? First, verse 8 says, by Jesus becoming a servant to the circumcised. It's, of course, a reference to the Jews. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He even says in Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul says Jesus became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, Jesus came as a servant to the Jews because God said he would. That's what Paul tells us. Jesus came to save because God keeps his promises. This word here that Paul uses, confirm, it means to, to put something beyond doubt. To remove any question whatsoever of its truthfulness. It is, it is certain. It is sure. And so Jesus' coming as a suffering servant to the Jews is proof positive. It is a sure sign that Jesus is going to do everything that God said he would do. That's what Paul tells us. He came as a servant. So we would look at that and we would say, if, 
If God confirmed his word with that, then he will surely do all that he has said he will do in Christ. Second then, verse 9 says, Christ was able to accept us by becoming a servant to the Gentiles. He makes these parallel statements here. Christ became a servant to the Jews on behalf of truth. Christ became a servant to the Gentiles on behalf of mercy. What a word, mercy. The withholding of deserved punishment. Having pity on someone in a miserable state. All we need to do is read the first three chapters of this book to see the miserable state that we were in. That's what God has done, though, in Jesus. We don't get the judgment we deserved. Instead, we get blessing beyond measure. We're grafted into the one olive tree that is Christ, given life instead of death. And to what end does Christ do this? It's for the glory of God. He saves us. He rescues us so that we might glorify Him. And in the next four verses here, Paul's going to to demonstrate this. He's going to take us on a grand tour of redemptive history, summarizing the whole Old Testament by pulling proofs from the law, the prophets, the writings. He's giving us a sampling of every section of the Old Testament to, to demonstrate for us that this is true. Demonstrating that the entirety of the scripture presents to us a unified plan of redemption. A unified plan of salvation. There there has only ever been, Paul is going to demonstrate for us in these texts, there has only ever been one people of God. It's not that there, there, there was Israel, there were the Jews, and God dealt with them this way. And then in the New Testament, the Gentiles came in, but we still kind of coexist with the Jews being over here and the Gentiles being over here, and God deals a little different. No, no, no. Paul demonstrates for us there's only ever been one people of God. There has only ever been one tree. There's only ever been one church. There's only ever been one salvation, one plan of redemption for all of God's people For all of time. Look what he says here. Continuing on in verse 9. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul brings these Old Testament witnesses forward to show us it's the the same Jesus who is the salvation of the Jewish people is the same Messiah as the Gentiles as well. And that was always the plan. It was always what God was doing. And so he quotes 2 Samuel 22, which is also Psalm 18, which tells us God's praises will be sung among the Gentiles. That they may hear, that they may believe, that they may join in his worship. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, which commands the Gentiles to worship God with his people Israel. That's what's happening right here in the Roman church that Paul's writing to. It's what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel. Jews and Gentiles together, worshiping with one voice. 
He quotes Psalm 117, which again reiterates the call of the psalmist for the Gentiles, for all people to praise the God of Israel. In verse 12, he quotes Isaiah chapter 11, which tells us that the root of Jesse is also the Savior of the Gentiles. In other words, the the Savior of the Gentiles would be a Jewish descendant of Jesse. And Paul's point is simple here. The plan of God was always to make for himself one people. If you were in the adult Sunday school class this morning, you heard it in God's promise to King David. I will make a house for my name. One house, one people. One people for himself from every tribe and nation and tongue. That was always the plan of God. And we see again in these examples how Paul never entertains for a second the idea that there's some other way into good standing with God, into fellowship with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none. For the Jew... And for the Gentile, there has only ever been one salvation, one tree, one Savior. Jesus is the only way. He's the Messiah of the Jews, and he's the Messiah of the Gentiles. And and it is his mission, it is the mission of this Messiah to bring unity in his body. To take those who were formerly hostile towards him and hostile towards one another and to make of them one new man for the praise of his glorious grace. That is the the mission of this great Messiah. And then in verse 13, he reminds us of the source of this blessing, this, this work that God is doing. And we see this prayer from Paul in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Peace and joy and hope and fellowship in the church are all the work of God by His Holy Spirit. What's the antidote to what we see so often in churches? What's the antidote to bitterness? What's the antidote to jealousy? What's the antidote to strife within the church? Well, it is not found in the latest best practices of church growth. It is not found by looking to the business world and looking at successful companies who seem to be doing well and saying, what are they doing? What are they doing to make their their customers like them and want to come to them? What are they doing to make their employees like each other and not want to quit working there? That unfortunately is if you go to the Christian bookstore and buy books on healthy churches, on growing churches, that's what you're going to find. We just look to the business world and we copy them the best we can. No, the antidote to bitterness and jealousy and strife and quarreling, disunity, it's found in one place at the throne of grace. And so Paul concludes this section, this lengthy section on unity in the church and and this call, this command to unity within the church, and really this, this, this lengthy letter with such mountaintops of doctrine, 
Such, such intense revelation of who God is and what salvation is. Such calls to living in the light of this gospel as, as Christians in this world. Paul concludes all of that. Not with a final argument. Not with a summary argument. But with a prayer. A prayer which, des- which expresses the desires of his heart. It's really a prayer which expresses the desires of the heart of God. First, we see that God is the origin and the object of hope. He is, Paul says, the God of hope. He's the one who gives hope. He's the source of our hope, and he is the object of our hope. He fills his people. It is God who fills his people with joy and peace as they Belief. And so Paul prays that we would believe. That, that we would believe and that as we do, God would fill us with joy and peace. If you want to have joy, let me tell you this. If you want your joy to grow, don't go to the Christian bookstore and buy a book that's got a lot of flowers and clouds on the cover and promises to you it can deliver it. Read the words of the Apostle Paul who talks about joy more than anyone else by a landslide. He mentions joy 21 times in his writing. I think the next closest is John at 9. Read the words of Paul. He, he, he is an apostle of joy. Then he tells us the goal of his prayer. Why does he pray to God that God would fill you with joy and peace as you believe? He says this, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. These things aren't automatic. Hope's not automatic. Unity in the church is certainly not an automatic thing. We've, we've talked over these last few weeks. It's, it's true of us. We have been united to Christ and united with one another. But our experience of that unity is sometimes greatly lacking, is it not? It is not an automatic thing. In fact, it can be hard, discouraging work. Some of you have been so disappointed in the church. Maybe this church. Maybe other churches. You've been so let down. You've become so disillusioned with other Christians that you have thought about giving up. Perhaps you've thought about giving up on the church entirely. Perhaps you've thought about giving up on God entirely. Friends, we must never surrender to this form of unbelief. And that is what it is. I love you. We have all been there. And it is unbelief. And it is disobedience. The Apostle Paul says, this is how you can go on. If you find yourself in that place, when you find yourself in that place, this is how you can go on. Because the God of hope will fill you with joy and peace as you believe so that you will abound in hope in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, that's what we need. And that's what God delivers. And that's how we go on. The the ability to believe and experience the gospel. 
God will give that to you as you believe. To experience unity in the church. God will grant that to us. But it all depends on the work of God in us. It is His work. It depends on Him. It's it's not something that comes naturally to us. The, The hope that we have that enables us to go on, it is not something that comes naturally to us. It comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. The things that should blow our mind in this passage, that the Holy God would accept us. That the second person of the triune God had the Lord Jesus Christ would would take on flesh, suffer every indignity we suffer in this life, and far, far greater. That He would accept us. He would become a servant so that we, we could be accepted that the third person of the divine triune Godhead would take up residence within us, empowering us. It's astounding. I, I grew up in circles that talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. And they diminished his work to goosebumps and impressions and strange feelings and behaviors. Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. He will give you hope. He will give you, fill you with joy. He will fill you with peace. He will cause you to persevere. He will make your efforts in the Lord fruitful. Not just in this life, for eternity. What is our hope, church? That the promises of Jesus are true and that He wins. And because He wins, we win. It is the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. Our surety of salvation. So Paul concludes his grand argument in Romans with a prayer for you. That you would know the hope of God. That it would lead to unity of fellowship in the body of believers. That that would witness to God's glory to a watching world. Oh, may he bring that about as a reality in our lives. May that be the testimony of this church. His people filled with His Spirit on His mission. What better, what better life could we have than that? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank You for... Lord, even as we have been challenged by our brother Paul in all the ways that we selfishly make things about ourselves and lack unity, Lord, the the heights to which He has brought us once again, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
the nearness and power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Lord, we we are astounded at your love for us. We are astounded at your mercy and at your grace. We are encouraged and strengthened by your promises, which you have proven to all be true. And so we lift our eyes to Christ. And we remind ourselves in your spirit that you will accomplish all that you have set out to accomplish, all that you will promise, have promised to accomplish. And we rest in that. And even as we rest in it, Lord, we pray that you would give us vigor and strength and courage to be about the work of the kingdom every day of our lives here on this earth for your glory, for your namesake, for the joy of your people for all time. And for your kingdom's sake, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.